in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 65 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. And 65, we're running out of players. This is the Sam Coonrod edition. This is also the Steve Edlifson edition and the Steve Soderstrom edition. So the Steve edition of the Bags and Brisby podcast. How are you doing? If you were a Steve and you have some way back Scandinavian ancestry, there's a good chance <laughs> you were number 65 as a giant. Steve Soderstrom, uh, that is Swedish for he who solders the Stroms together. Wasn't he a Stanford guy? And did he play quarterback, if memory serves? I just remember big time draft pick, first round pick, sixth overall. He was Fresno State. Let's see who was taken over him or behind him, actually, I guess would be more relevant. So this is uh, right after him was Trot Nixon. A few picks later, Billy Wagner, Derek Lee, Torrey Hunter, Jason Veritek. So maybe one you would redo, but right above him was Jeff Granger and Wayne Gomes, Giants legend Wayne Gomes. So it's not like, you know, the Giants had just the sea of obvious number six talent, but uh Probably a pick they would have liked to have back. Yeah, so not a Stanford guy, a Fresno State guy, and never a quarterback. So obviously I'm thinking of someone completely different. Thinking of Giants great uh, Todd Helton. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. Todd Helton and Seth Smith, I believe, also. There were a lot of baseball players who were backups to really good Hall of Fame quarterbacks who ended up... It seems like a good spot, like a good way to scratch that itch where you want to focus on baseball, but you also don't want to give up football entirely. Just sort of go to a, a top program and be the backup. I think, wasn't Seth Smith Eli Manning's backup and uh, Todd Helton was Peyton Manning's backup? Ooh, that's good knowledge. I did, I did, I knew that about Helton, but I, I wasn't sure about uh, Seth Smith. Yeah, yeah. All those Rockies. That's what they, what they did. They just they just scouted backup quarterbacks and said, we're going to learn you some baseball and, and, and draft you. <laughs> I'm always fond of the maniac punter, you know, route with Darren Erstadt, where you've got a punter who's just a little bit like, off when it comes to punters and really wants to hurt people. Uh, I really like that that, that uh, template. Yeah, that was a weird one because I guess the baseball team used the same indoor facility as football. And uh, and so he was there on a baseball scholarship and he's just messing around, punting the football. And Tom Osborne or somebody on the coaching staff or someone said, he's kind of booming him out there. Let's give him a look. And then it turns out that they got this guy who's not only one of the best punters in the country on a national championship team, but yeah, he would go hurdle his body down there on special teams. And and he kind of played that way in his major league career too. And actually, it's funny, we mentioned Darren Erstad because I just contributed to something with um, Mark Saxon and Fabian Ardaya, guys who cover the Angels or have covered the Angels. And I covered the Angels in 2000, 2001. And then I liberated myself from that beat just in the nick of time. But I got to cover Darren Erstad in 2000. We picked the best seasons by the Angels in this decade. So they just fought over which Mike Trout season was the best. And I took 2002 Garrett Anderson and 2000 Darren Erstad. Darren Erstad had seven, like 770 plate appearances that year. It was insane. He drove in 100 runs from a leadoff spot, which no one had ever done before. He had 240 hits 
which was pre-Ichiro. So, you know, that, that was like, this hadn't been done except by maybe Wade Boggs since like the 1930s. And uh, and he did not win the batting title, hitting 355 because Nomar hit 363. One of those under the radar seasons that the more you examine it, the more it's like, this was insane. It's kind of like when you look at like some of Ellis Burks' seasons with the Rockies. It's like, how did no one notice that he put up these numbers? Obviously, it was a sort of a screwball time there for baseball. Yeah, and you know, I'm a big stat guy, and uh, I, but I still, I will make the argument that when you've got 250 freaking hits, that's 250 times you made people at home or people in the stands cheer. That's important. That is, you have a feeling when that guy comes to the plate that this is going to be awesome, and you're rewarded for that feeling more time than, than not. So what I'm saying is that the Giants need to get a 355 hitter. Yeah, you know, someone who could get about 240 hits, and now that nobody even gets 200 hits in a season, that, that makes perfect sense. All right, well, let's segue into the Giants. And we are here to talk about sweet, sweet dingers. We're here to talk about home runs. Uh, I am currently in the middle of a mammoth list of the top 50 home runs in San Francisco Giants history. I have done the first 25. And there are, I haven't been yelled at nearly as much as I thought I would be yelled at. Uh, Some people took a little bit of issue that I I put Willie Mays hitting the the 16th inning home run that that won the game uh, in the great spawn Marichal duel. Some people took tasks that that's too low. I, I can argue on behalf of that. But you specifically pointed one out, and it seems to be the one that most people point out. Either you love this home run or you hate it, and that's the JT Snow home run. Two and one to Snow. The set by the right-hander. He kicks, he deals, snow swings, high fly ball to right, hit to the corner, Perez chasing to the wall, it's gone! Oh, no! It's gone! Snow has homered, and we are tied! Yeah, so I think that this is an interesting one because it depends on your perspective a little bit. I mean, for me, when I was uh, you know, writing my book about the greatest moments in the history of the new ballpark, one of the games that stood out to me was a game the Giants lost, obviously. Uh, the game that J.T. Snow hit the home run off Armando Benitez that barely scraped the roof down the line. And for me, what what I kept hearing from people who, you know, I didn't cover the Giants then. I wasn't following the Giants then. But people would keep bringing up that moment in that home run. And sort of the common thread was, you know, even though it was a game that the Giants lost in, in just sort of gut-wrenching fashion, that moment was like the first time that all of these new fans who had bought these season ticket uh, packages and the way the crowds had gotten a little more corporate at the new ballpark, that was the first time that strangers were hugging each other. People were all a community of fans together. Uh, everyone loosened their ties. And, you know, that was the first signature moment for the ballpark. And I thought, well, all that sounds really, really great and important, even though like Benny Agbiani or somebody came around later and, and won the game for the Mets. So I always thought that was kind of a signature moment, a signature home run. So when I saw that you put it where you put it on your list, I thought, hmm, that that one seems a little low to me. But then the way that you explained why you had it ranked so low absolutely makes sense too. It's a tricky one because I used, when I grew up, I would see the highlight of Carlton Fisk waving the ball fair at Fenway. And I would think to myself, and this is when I was obsessed with championships because the Giants were never, ever going to win one in my lifetime. And I'd look at that highlight and I'd say, that's what you got, Boston? That That's your, your baseball highlight of baseball highlights? Because I'll tell you what happened the next day in Game 7, you lost. You lost the World Series. And how does that not, how do you not watch the Carlton Fisk home run without thinking about what happened the next day? And as I got older, I appreciated, no, you know, as a moment, 
oh my gosh, oh, what a beautiful baseball moment. What a moment of hope, a moment of joy. And I, I came around to be normal and to appreciate the Carlton Fisk home run the way it should be appreciated. And so I'll admit that I have a kind of a, a bias of like, and then what happened? You know, kind of like there's this naysayer, uh, everything has to be perfect and lead to the ultimate glory of a championship, which is a dumb way to follow baseball. At the same time, I'm going to need you to win the game. I'm going to need you to take that that excitement that everyone felt and not turn around and just just punch him in the stomach, I don't know, five minutes later, ten minutes later? It wasn't, wasn't too long after where I believe it was two outs. I'm going to screw up the details. I know Daryl Hamilton, old friend Daryl Hamilton was involved. That's it. It was Jay Payton. Jay Payton. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jay Payton. And this was all with two outs. So it was two quick outs, and then you've got Daryl Hamilton doubling. You've got Jay Payton singling, and then that's it until the bottom of the 10th when you have Barry Bonds with a runner on first base. Barry Bonds is the winning run, and John Franco strikes him out on a 3-2 pitch. That's It's a little inside. I'm sorry. I've, I've looked at it. I've looked at the lasers. I've, I've, I've done some 3D modeling. Pitch is just a little inside. And at the time, it's funny because I watched it from the left field bleachers, and I kind of like had an idea based on how Bonds reacted he didn't he didn't give the jackknife stare back too often and I said I want to see that pitch again and it took like 13 years for technology to catch up and allow me to go online and watch that pitch again so like for 13 years I was like I think that was inside and then finally I looked it's like inside but yeah so that's my feeling I just I, I went home that night and just stared at a wall and that's I wrote that and it's not like writerly hyperbole I, I sat there and i drank and i stared at a wall and how'd that work for you uh you know 20 what is it 20 years later i'm still doing the same thing <laughs> that, so i think I, I think i'm onto something yeah it's uh you know looking at your list though there are so many good ones that i didn't really think of and i one that i i love from your uh most recent dispatch which are numbers i believe 30 through 26 <clears throat> is willie mays's 512th homer I love that you brought that one up because I, I remember doing something for one of the Giants yearbooks or something some years back where it was like they have the most members of the 500 home run club. So I was talking to each of their 500 home run club members about what they remember from hitting their 500th. And so I talked to Willie McCovey and I got Willie Mays and I, ta- and I, I called up Barry Bonds' publicist and I told her what I was working on. I hoped I could get some time with Barry. And she said, well, did you talk to Mays? Yes. Did you talk to McCovey? Yes. Uh, well, okay. And what about this Mel Ott? Did you talk to him? And I said, well, <laughs> well, you know, I hired a, um, I hired a seance um, and, and I got a medium. And so we're yeah. working on that. But he did very, very sadly perish in a car accident in Gretna Green, uh, uh, Louisiana about 30 years ago. But anyway, I did get Barry for that uh, story, and all of them are great. But Willie, what I realized later, had all the facts wrong because he didn't think 500 was a big deal. He thought 511 and 512 were a big deal. That, to him, was the really important thing at the time because the National League and the American League were walled off. I mean, those teams didn't meet except the World Series. So the National League record and the American League record those were super important back then. And uh, especially Mel Ott, a, a franchise legend, held the National League record uh, for home runs. And so when Willie Mays you know, tied and broke that, that meant a lot to him and a lot to people at the time. And, and now I think it's sort of forgotten to history because you know no one cares about what National League records are. 
it's something that surprised me. And I had uh, Maze's 500th uh, uh, on the provisional list, just like I had uh, uh, McCovey's 500th. And for a time, I think when I was growing up, 500 was super, super important. But I think you needed to build a 500 club because before there was like a, a big and vast 500 club to add to. There was just sort of like, yeah, this is cool. It's a round number. It's, it's five. We've got five digits on each hand. Like that's why it's important, but it's also not that important. What a neat little quirk. Whereas when I was growing up, like 500 was, you know, is, is Mike Schmidt going to hit 500 and what's he going to do? He's going to ride a little invisible bicycle on the way to first base. <laughs> and, you know, like it was like super 500 meant something to me growing up, but I don't necessarily think that's like inherent to the number. It just as more people got into it and you saw the list of names and it's a darned impressive list of names that's when it became the 500 club capital capital five so i just i don't know i so i look back at the, at the newspapers and i saw where it was going i saw the headline difference was maze hits 500 giants win and then the story is basically about the giants winning and then then like the quotes in the third or fourth graph were yeah i can't wait till 512 and it's like, oh, and then the more you dig back, and then when he hits that home run, the the headlines are like, Maze breaks National League record, and it's all about that. There's like, there's the news story, there's a columnist who's who's expanding on it. Like that, to me, just looking at how it was covered in all the newspapers back in the day, that was sort of my hint. Can you tell me about your research and your methods and how all that worked? You know, there's there's two couple sources. There's newspapers.com, and then there's uh, news.google. Uh, com and it's newspapers you need a subscription and the Google one you don't but the Google one of course is, is not going to be as thorough uh, if this were a different time I'd probably hang out in the San Francisco library and, and and get my hands dirty with some microfiche but at the same time I'm also lazy so this works out for me uh, but you know I go you go through and you do these search terms and you really do have to dig because it's you'll get a ton of UPI, AP, and in, in the the hits will be from the I don't know the the Tuscaloosa the Star or something like that, and you've got to dig through and, and find like the San Francisco Examiner and, and the Sacramento Bee, and and there's no Chronicle in there, um, so I you know the Chronicle's online archives only go back to I think the 80s somewhere. Uh, so unless I want to bug poor Peter Hartlob for something specific, which I try not to do very often, it's it's going to be those those are the main sources. I was going to say that Peter Hartlob is is the one one stop shop for uh, all things old Chronicle, all things yellowed uh, print uh, journalism. Uh, go to Peter. I want to keep as many of those quivers and or arrows my quiver as possible. You know what? Subscribe to your local newspaper and also subscribe to your your old local newspaper because there's a wealth of information <laughs> in there. And the ads, some of the ads uh, that you would uh, post on, on Twitter were, were quite enjoyable. When I go through and do a historical deep dive in newspapers and stuff like that, I'm very much just like a, a kitten, like, ooh, butterfly. You know, like I just see like on this page, like I found like a story about uh, San Francisco high school quarterback Mike Holmgren. Of course, <laughs> right. I read a, a whole <laughs> article about San Francisco quarterback Mike Holmgren, this uh, young Adonis throwing uh, <laughs> footballs across the field with such grace and, and vigor. And it's like, oh, that's so awesome. I just, I, and then the ads, of course, and in different stories and the pages after pages of horse handicap tables it, it just fascinates me the whole you know the, the way people consumed everything back then it's, it's so different and yet i feel like there's some middle chlorians in me that that are attached to that and remember it somehow I, I mean the fact that we you know there was less media i think meant that more of us consumed the same diet of media which 
you'd think, okay, well, that's not good. We, we need more perspectives out there. We need more, especially perspectives of people who can't really maybe say afford a printing press. But there, there was a sort of a commonality and a sense of community, I think, in that we all had the same four channels to flip through plus a UHF or, or you know, the same newspaper was all hitting our driveways. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving, thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0, waterproof cordless body trimmer, and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC, one word, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC. For a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code THEATHLETIC. You know, for those of us who have that common experience, it, it it's kind of cool to look back and think, you know, it, it, maybe it's a fallacy to say life was simpler, but but in a lot of ways it was. Yeah, I'm getting to a point where I, I've got uh, just a handful of home runs left that are going to need that deep dive back in the archives. And it's it's getting to be bags time. You know, it's getting to be, I'm going to start looking at what you said, the quotes you got, because it's... The Giants, this home run list is, you know, without giving too much away, uh, a lot of cool home runs happened in the past 20 years. And it just, it's really, really impressive to look through one franchise, and not just the whole franchise, but since they moved to San Francisco in 58, how many home runs they've packed in and it's they've got a lot of they have they've had a lot of great moments but the breadth of weird home runs historic home runs postseason home runs it like it all it's an amazing menagerie of home runs can you tell me how many bonds home runs you have on the list total uh let's see um i've got one that's Two, it. Just three, one. Nope. Just four, one. <laughs> five, six, uh, seven, eight, nine. So I believe nine, unless I count it wrong. So I'll go with nine. So yeah, basically, when I was doing this thing with the Angels guys, and it's like, okay, we're gonna draft the best seasons by an Angel in the two thousands. Uh, they were like, oh, this is a golden age for Angel baseball. They won their World Series. I'm like, oh, how cute. You won one. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, talking about, uh, you know, what are the best seasons by an angel? I'm like, you guys, if we do it this way, it's going to be the most boring story ever because I'll take Mike Trout in 2019. I'll take Mike Trout in 2012. I'll take Mike Trout in uh, 2015. So, yeah, I, I took no Mike Trouts. But, yeah, it's 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 almost like, gosh, it, it, was this list going to be all Barry Bonds homers? And, and clearly it's not. It's not even a quarter bonds homers and you think of all the the memorable ones he hit so that that tells you right there just you know the length and breadth i guess of of big moments that this franchise has, has treated its fans to yesterday the the official toronto blue jays twitter account uh, there was some sort of prompt from mlb or cut four that said who had the sweetest swing in baseball history and, and the official toronto blue jays account responded with video of john O'Rourke, and there they said um is hitting 363 pretty good and I went like, oh, yeah, I want to look at that John Orwood season. So I went back 
in his 1993 season, he had 54 doubles. He hit 363 with a 473 on base percentage. Just a remarkable, remarkable offensive season. And then I thought, wait a minute. Barry Bonds in 2004 hit 362. And then I looked, and he hit 362. And his on-base percentage was higher than John Olrude's slugging percentage. <laughs> his on-base percentage was 609, and John Olrude's was 598. And I, I don't want to like diminish that Olrude season. That's a classic, historic season. Where we just talked about the Darren Erstad season, and it, it's kind of on par with that. Where this guy comes up, and you're thinking he's he's Ted Williams reborn. You're just expecting that hit, and you're going to get it more often than not. Bonds did that while hitting 45 homers, while walking 232 times, uh, while getting intentionally walked 120 times. And he still drove in 101 runs. Like I, That season absolutely boggles my mind. Yeah, John Olerud just wasn't intimidating enough. Uh, even, even with that helmet when he played first base, to be intentionally walked 120 times in one season. There is an old story about uh, John Olerud, uh, and it involves Ricky Henderson. I guess Olerud gets to the Mets, and Ricky asks him, hey, why do you wear a helmet when you play first base? Because uh, you wear that little helmet hat. And Olerud said, oh, well, you know, I had a, a brain aneurysm when I was younger, and, and so I, I wear it as a precaution. And Ricky said, oh, I played with a guy in Toronto who had one of those. And Olerud said, yeah, Ricky, it was me. <laughs> and and I'm told, I'm told the story is sadly very warped to the point it's not true, <laughs> and yet people still tell it. I want to believe it. I, I mean, it's it's one of the better baseball stories, even if it's fake, just because you want to believe it. I mean, but at the same time, you don't need to dig for the great Ricky Henderson stories because the, one of the ones that is true is when he got his first million dollar check from the Yankees. And after a while, accounting was like, well, what's going on? This check, did he not get it? It's, it hasn't been cashed. And they called him. He's like, oh, it's, it's, it's on my wall. Hung it up. He hung it up on his wall and just, did yeah, not cash I framed it. it. You know what? And and somebody in HR missed an op- missed a great embezzling opportunity there. <laughs> That's the way oh, I look at yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You do you. You do you. I will let you know. You get the steps to the, you know, to the bank. Um, well, another one. Another one of my favorite Ricky Henderson anecdotes. Not to turn this into a Ricky Henderson anecdote, but it, it's a personal one where I waited in line for an hour at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds to have Ricky Henderson sign a bunch of my things. He was my guy. Like, that was my guy growing up. I was a huge Ricky Henderson fan. And so to have him in the San Mateo County Fairgrounds was unbelievable. And I got up there. And again, there's like an hour-long line behind me. And he sees my cards. And and I've got some unique cards. I have a Granny Goose card. that it has a contest underneath that you would scratch off and see if you won, I don't know, a bag of chips or a Corvette or something. And he took it and he goes, Oh, okay. Now check this out. This is an, this is a valuable Ricky card, and here's why. So, so you can't scratch this because if you scratch it, it becomes less valuable. Oh, and you've got a Ricky rookie. Okay, yeah. No, this is a this is this is one of Ricky's rookies, and you you know you want to keep this nice and mint. And like he was like going through my cards and explaining <laughs> why they were cool, and he really really liked the the Granny Goose card, and I was just smitten. I was just like, he knows what the Granny Goose card was. Yeah. And and then one of the things is. I had a, a, an old Yankees hat and it was just a trash Yankees hat that I found at garage sale that morning. 
and my parents forgot to buy a ticket for it. And I saw at the end, he signed everything and I brought it up and my parents said, oh, no, 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 no. We didn't buy a ticket for that. I'm sorry. And Ricky just grabbed it. He said, no, Ricky will sign it. And he signed it. And he really did say Ricky about 30 times during the conversation. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, Legend. And now, I of course, it. I'm thinking that perhaps that, that you missed a chance to win a Corvette because you never scratched off the Granny Goose card. But um, I still have it and I'm always tempted. You know, ooh. it's like, oh, what's in there? And you know the contest is expired. But listen, I'm sure Granny Goose is rolling in money these days. Uh they're not in business anymore, are they? What did they make? I remember the chips. Them. They were potato chips. Oh, they're potato chips. Okay, I remember the mother's cookies cards. Those are always a big deal, and those were cool looking cards too because they look more like photographs. Yeah, and they were like had the nice rounded corners. Mm-hmm. I like the mother's cookies. I actually have it in my garage an uncut sheet from the nineteen, I think eighty nine series of or no nineteen ninety because it's got the the nineteen eighty nine National League champion. So an uncut sheet is hanging in my garage, which is. A normal thing to have, a normal thing to oh, have. Oh, of course. Yeah, without a doubt. I just like my Tuffy Rhodes Kintetsu Buffalo's bobblehead. Everyone has one of those, right? <laughs> you know what? That This is a good... We should have a weird memorabilia. Do you have like a lot of weird memorabilia? Oh, my around, gosh, or... yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. Oh, I've got a lot of knickknacks. I'm, I'm staring right now at, at my little bendy figures of the racing sausages from Milwaukee. Oh, um, I've, got a, I've got a very old four-finger glove with Heine Minouche's signature on it. Um, Beautiful. Rep- Wait, you know what? Save all this. I think I think we've figured out our next our next uh, installment uh, next next Monday. I think uh, let's do weird memorabilia. Oh, good. Okay, excellent. Sounds good. No, I like that. Uh, so this they this somehow became the Ricky Henderson podcast, and I don't think we need to apologize for that. Oh, Ricky hit some um, home runs, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it, the the home run list is I'm going to be doing an installment today. And by the time people hear it, I don't think it'll be published yet. But so today I'm going to be writing about Juan Marichal hitting a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. Barry Bonds hitting his 500th, which is one of my favorite all-time home runs. So I think it's ranked higher than it should be. Uh, Mays hitting 600, which is even when you consider that it wasn't like the 500 club wasn't a big deal. The 600 club kind of was. Uh, Bonds is 73rd, which is sort of like tucked in there because no one really knew that it would be the record at the time, uh, although they kind of did. And then, uh, so let's talk about this one. Robbie Thompson in the 1989 NLCS, game three. All right, so the Giants are down to the Cubs. It, you want you want, you want to take it over from there? Oh, we lost Andy. Oh, that's weird. Must be connection. Uh, I'm sorry, I tuned out for a moment. I, 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 you broke up after Barry Bonds' 600th. Oh, no, but it's still, it's an impressive list, and I urge you to subscribe to The Athletic and read it. And if you already subscribe, which you probably do, bully people into subscribing. Like, literally bully them. Text them right now, and if they give you some excuse, bully them. Gentle encouragement uh, first, and then if that doesn't work, then take harsher measures. <laughs> no, it's for a, a team that has played in a stadium that is has been always been historically unfriendly to home runs. I guess when the wind was blowing out, Candlestick could play either way. Uh, but for the most part, you think about the wind beating home runs back, and you think about the vast, vast acreage of Pac Bell, SBC, Oracle Park, just gobbling up Brandon Belt's home runs. But there have been just a lot of really cool Giants home runs. Yeah, yeah. No, there have been. And none of them were hit in 1989. Absolutely none. <laughs> then, honestly, are, are you? can you look back at that with the impassionate journalistic perspective now because you're not supposed to have a team and, and you know, that's the fun has been stripped from you? Or are you still kind of looking back and going, gosh, dang it, 
Or is this, you know, how are you feeling about 1989? Grant, I have nothing but, but I have nothing but bitterness when it comes to 1989. No, it's funny. I mean, you become a, a reporter and you have to let go. I think uh, when, when you, especially when you have to go in clubhouses and you're going on the road and you're trying to write objectively about a team, I think you have to kind of let go of being a fan or fan loyalties, at least, um, you know, you root for good stories and good outcomes uh, to write about. So for me, I, I can't, I mean, I'm not a Cubs fan, obviously. Uh, when they won, I sort of felt sad that I didn't feel happier. I was happy for all of my brothers and my mom and dad and people in my family who just were over the moon, as well you'd imagine they would have been. But uh, for me, I will always be a fan and always have those fan loyalties and ties to the teams that I grew up rooting for and the players I grew up rooting for, which is why I'm, I'm still never as nice to Tim Flannery as I really should be. And I know he just he just hit the little <laughs> dribbler that went between Leon Durham's legs. It's not his fault that Leon Durham didn't field the ball, but he still hit it, right? Steve Garvey, I remember being introduced to Steve Garvey on the field at Dodger Stadium the year before last by Henry Shulman. And I said, Mr. Garvey, I I, I believe in honesty and, and, and I just don't like you very much. I'm sorry, uh, because you hit that home run. <laughs> In 1984 against the Cubs. So, so yeah, it's, I will always, and to me, I think it almost strengthens the tie I had to those teams that I grew up rooting for because those are the only teams that I can be a fan of now. So, yeah, I love me some Jody Davis and Ryan Sandberg and, and Mark Grace. And yeah, I, I read uh, Dan Brown's fantastic Will Clark oral history. So good. It was really good. And yet the whole time I was just like, ugh. Ugh. <laughs> is is this over? Oh, this is all great. I don't want it to end, but please let it end. But uh, yeah, I like the part where Bob Brenly, you know, he works in the broadcast booth in Arizona with Mark Grace. And he said, Mark Grace is still sort of like, no one's ever going to remember that I hit like 700 in that series too. So um, funny. <laughs> so yeah, it's, 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 you never stop, uh, I think, being a fan of those teams uh, um, that you were a fan of when you were a kid. And in some ways, those, those bonds are even stronger. That's a good distinction to make, I think, and I, I think I'm, I'm sort of making that distinction between you know when I was uh, an amateur writer or just a fan and, and what I'm doing now. So I, I, I kind of have that when I, when I started laughing uh, to myself when the 2016 Giants bullpen started blowing, and I start just chuckling like, man, oh man, this ain't gonna end well. And I realized some a switch has flipped in me. Like I'm not angry and throwing things. I'm just sort of like, oh boy, here comes the content. And I don't know. It's 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 different for me. But I thought when you were starting that story with Steve Garvey, I thought, you know, he probably gets that all the time. You know, people coming up and saying, I don't like you, but that's mostly people who are upset that uh, he's their father and he never reached out. <laughs> oh, wow, it's like we're out of time. <laughs> I was I was gonna come back with something along those lines and you you just you you beat me to it. That was good. Okay, well, this has been episode 65 of the Bags and Brisby podcast, and we will be back. We're going to have a special episode on Thursday, so make sure and look out for that. Uh, you're going to talk to John Shea about his new Willie Mays book, and that's going to be some fascinating stuff because, like you, you said, it's a labor of love, and I cannot wait to get my hands on that. So uh, looking forward to that. As always, thanks for listening, and we will be back on Thursday. <laughs>